Welcome to the Invincible Innovation Show, the podcast for changemakers. Each week, I talk to the most fascinating entrepreneurs and innovation leaders about innovation, strategy, and design. Hey, everyone. And the question we have today is, why is user research so important now more than ever? Welcome to Invincible Innovation Live. I'm Adima Zorkario, innovation and value creation expert, and I'll be your host. And today I have a very special guest, and I'm very happy to have with me Tomer Sharon. Yay! Tomer is the managing director and head of user research and metrics at Goldman Sachs and the author of three wonderful books about user research that I really recommend. Hey, very Hi, happy. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy that you're here with me and we're going to have a very exciting talk for sure. And let's just jump into the subject. What would be like if I would ask you, what would be the secret sauce for a perfect user research? Well, first of all, there's not, nothing perfect. <laughs> it's, <laughs> right. uh, in, many, in many cases, uh, it's messy. Um, secret sauce, I would say, I would say just, just doing it. Um, more and more, I'll be positive for a second, more and more companies and organizations understand that this is helpful and this is telling them a lot about what they should do, about what their customers care about and so on. Um, but a lot of companies and organizations are not doing that at all and all are right. still, unfortunately, uh, trusting their intuition or just look at data without any attempt to explain it with, with reality rather than in a... virtual today uh, meeting room inside the company yeah yeah you're right you know I see it like for I, I've been doing like product and, and experience and strategy for about 20 years and I think that in Israel it's so like it's not it's not seen at all so it's only like very big companies do that or maybe very small like very like in once in a year or once in a quarter or it's not really so prevalent um, and, and I think it's well, so important I've, I've been outside of Israel for many years now so I'm, I'm not sure I know everything about what's going on there it seems to me that it's going but yeah. I'll, I'll surprise you um, research is, is challenged everywhere not just uh, in Israel if that's the case I'm not sure But I, I, I believe like in, in American, like big corporate American companies, it's more prevalent. You see it more. Uh, people ask me what, what company, what American companies have uh, researchers. And I don't know for sure that what I'm going to say is true, but I'm, it seems that Fortune 500 companies or any company you've heard of, you heard the name of a company, they have researchers. Um, whether that, that's a mature practice or not in, in those companies, that's a different question, but um, I'm pretty sure it's pretty prevalent. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask, if somebody's watching us and have any questions, you're really invited. We're in the middle of like in a live show, so feel free and we'll be happy to if you'll join us. Um, so why do you think that right now we're in, in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of the COVID crisis? Why do you think... research is so important these days? It's very easy not to do it. And there are always excuses for not, why not to do it. Um, for example, we researchers always like to say, you know, we need to look pe to people in the eyes, we need to observe their 
their environment. I, I used to say, you know, sometimes I just need to see where somebody's sitting or their home or whatever it is without even saying anything or asking anything. I can tell you about a lot of things that I learned. Now we don't have all of that. Now it's, it's pretty much the same as, as, uh, as what we do here. Um, and yeah, I can see some things in your background. You can see some things on my background and you, we can learn about each other without even asking about it, but uh, it's becoming more challenging. So I would say in these times, um, don't put it gonna in, the, in the back burner and do your research anyway. Uh, it really depends on on where you are, you know, where you're based. So some countries and cities are safer to go outside and do research. Some are not. Most are probably not. So um, so Zoom is pretty much our our only uh, option. I would say insist and invest on keep doing it because um, yeah, there's a crisis, but still um, our users are are the people who use what we you know build and create. They still, um, they still care about things. Things still change for them. And it's always better to know about that than, than not knowing about anything, any of that. Sure. So we have a user on LinkedIn saying that Autodesk T uh, T Tel Aviv has a researcher. So we have okay. one. I'm sure and we have a... Yeah, I guess. And I have, I'll show you another question we have. Dalmar Hussein is asking you. What if, if anything has changed about your approach to atomic research since first publishing about it medium like three years ago? Thank you, Tamar, for your question. All right, so atomic research, just uh, for people who don't know what, <laughs> what that is. Um, there was something that uh, boiled in my mind uh, for years, um, mostly during the time when I, when I worked at Google, that the way we're used to um, conducting research and um, analyzing and synthesizing research um, is not really effective. Um, and I came up and you know, this is a really long story short, but <laughs> came up with, with, with an approach I called atomic research um, in which we don't write reports. And instead of reports, we come up with, I call them research nuggets, small insights uh, that are tagged really well added to a, to a database. And then once they're tagged and they're in a database, then you can pretty much create uh, a report based on these atoms. Um, so mm -hmm. anyone can access that and, and find answers to questions they have. Uh, this was one minute about uh, atomic research. What happened since? So, so since I um, left uh, Google and started talking about atomic research and introducing it, um, I built a system with my team at WeWork at the time um, and then worked on that um, at Google. I think this is still very young, so we're learning a ton of things uh, every day that we're practicing it. Um, it's not a well-figured-out approach yet, um, but again, I'll be, I'll be positive, there are more and more organizations and researchers that get it and see uh, the benefit of using it. Um, and then uh, another another signal that I see that's really positive uh, is that the, a lot of uh, uh, commercial products are popping up uh, to support this approach. 
So um, me personally, it's just you know small lessons learned along the way to do it better. Um, but worldwide, I think kind of uh, in general, there's more acceptance, more understanding. There are groups that uh, do projects around understanding it, uh, research repositories, research insight repositories that it has different names and different angles. And I'm kind of, sometimes I'm a part of it. Sometimes I'm not, I'm very happy with uh, everything I see uh, growing yeah. about that because I think this is a way to kind of get outside of a situation that research is very much looking like a production line of reports rather yeah. than um, a way to better understand your, your users. So it, it's, it's actually making research more approachable and understandable and um, easy to use because it's not like this very long, long report that you need to really yeah. understand. And, and, and also it helps you, I, I agree. It also helps, it also helps you not lose a lot of what you learned. If you ask me, I worked for seven years at Google. If you ask me at year six about a study that I did in year one, I wouldn't remember. It would be very hard for me to find the report, if at all. And if I needed to, if I have the same questions again, then I would probably need to do the research again. Um, yeah. So it, it avoids these situations of losing, just losing insight. Mm. Yeah. So you mentioned you worked in Google and WeWork, and now you're working in Goldman Sachs. So, so could you tell us about the innovation processes and what's the difference between these different companies? Um, so first of all, innovation is a, is a tricky word. Um, right. So, um, and I, I think the way, the way I look at innovation is now, let's say you have a product, you have a service, you have you have something, there is something. To me, innovation is measuring a lot of things related to the product, to the product. And we can talk about what these measurements are later, but measuring a lot of things, seeing where you score low and where you score low, tell your teams, okay, let's say you scored, let's say where the score runs from zero to 100 and you scored 37, which is low. Yeah. So you tell your team, your goal is to move that needle. You have six months. I'm not telling you to build an app. I'm not telling you to, to create, build this feature. I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm telling you, just move that needle. You find a way to move that needle. Your goal is to move it in six months to 57, I don't know, whatever it is. And then you open the door for what I consider innovation. Yeah. To me, that's how innovation looks like rather than, um, and I know it's very popular, uh, establishing an innovation group or, or yeah. something like that. Um, so with Google, there was, there was never an innovation group. Um, so I, I don't even know how to relate to that. With Google, there was a lot of opportunity to solve problems, um, a lot of freedom to do the right thing. Uh, so it was very, it was very natural. There was no need yeah. to talk about innovation. Right. Um, WeWork was somewhat similar, uh, I would say. Um, at Google, I was uh, obviously Google was was and still is a, a much more mature company in terms of um, 
product development and digital product development and measurements in, in general. Um, WeWork was just kind of beginning to understand uh, a lot of these things. So it was less mature, but still a lot of room for uh, exactly what I just described, for uh, either building something from scratch or uh, measuring something that was created and understanding you know, what, what would uh, move that needle and experimenting with what would move that, that needle. Um, Goldman Sachs had, um, has an operation that's somewhat different than all of that. Goldman Sachs is a company that celebrates, uh, celebrated this year, 151 years to, wow. to its existence. Wow. So, so it's very different, um, than we work, but very different than, than Google in terms of, um, how long it's been doing business. Let's, let's call it that. Yeah. Um, that said, they are invested in software development as well and services, uh, services they've been doing forever, uh, software development, several decades, I would say. Um, and But there, it's a very traditional company. Uh, there are a lot of advantages to that. When you talk about innovation, there needed to be some new ways of doing that. Um, an old dog can learn new tricks. Um, and it did. There was, uh, uh, and it was. It's a. Uh, it's public information. What I'm describing. Uh, Goldman started a program called uh, GS Goldman Sachs uh, Accelerate. Um, it's it's like an annual competition uh, between employees. Anyone can submit an idea for a new product, a new service, a new whatever, and then um, there are judges across the company and uh, about five. Uh, proposals are being selected after a long kind of uh, filtering process, and those five get uh, get funded. And people yeah. who came up with the idea have the opportunity to leave their job within Goldman and and only do that. Yeah, um, it's like a, an internal startup that they are trying to build. Yeah, from within. Something like that. And then, yeah, uh, it's been happening for I think three years, like two or three years now. Um, I can tell you that there are the more mature ones are leaving that group, the accelerate group, and are now placed within the kind of the, the divisions. So mm -hmm. they move to to the divisions. Um, yeah. it, it's very similar to what I hear about and know about and I related to innovation groups. Um, time will tell in Goldman if yeah. that, that works or not, because it's still a very young program. Mm -hmm. um, in other places, I've seen that it's it's somewhat difficult to kind of take that group from somewhat the outside and then plant it within an existing division. Yeah, yeah, it um, is. It is problematic in many cases when you have this innovation group or a program. You take the people outside and you train them, and they get to something, and then it's really hard for them to go back. Yeah. And on some cases, they are going out, and sometimes it's it's really hard to to get them inside the company and really yeah. match them together. Yeah, it's a problem about uh, innovation programs, and 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 you know it, it's growing within the companies. It's not something finite, and and everybody's yeah. learning. But, but what do you I think innovation can can perform better if people in those divisions are, are doing that rather than um, bringing somebody from the outside because yeah. if, if somebody if only people from the outside are innovative then what what how can we describe the people who are 
doing the hard work, the hard day-to-day work within the divisions. Right, so, right. No I mean, the answer what is probably not very flattering. Yeah, what what you're saying is like it should be more like Google, which is everybody's innovating all the time and trying to make the work better than just trying to detach the innovation from the daily life of the workers or something like that. Maybe. I mean, again, yeah. at Google, there, there's no conversation about innovation. So, yeah, um, yeah maybe. But what you said about research helping you do things better is only one side of research, I guess. And if you want to create something which is totally new, for example, we're in the middle of yeah. the crisis and there are so many open and new opportunities out there. Mm-hmm. So you need to really start from scratch. It's not like reinventing something or making it a bit better. And in these cases, you just really have to know what has changed with your market, with your users, with your clients, I guess. And and there you, you just cannot really predict anything without really asking and researching, right? I agree. I agree. And this is uh, another thing that I kind of started talking about um, together with atomic research was continuous research. Continuous research is research, it's gonna sound awkward. It's research without goals. Um, with no specific product in mind. Uh, it's research where the questions are really open-ended and the people you talk with, they decide what they want to talk about. And then you're really kind of opening yourself to hearing um, you know, about a lot these people care about, do have problems with, delighted with, whatever it is, uh, based on their choice about what to talk, Uh, what to mention, what to talk about. And then you're creating an opportunity for yourself to create something you never thought of uh, right. before because you're opening up yourself to any any type of input. Yeah, it's like taking the research into some kind of like open innovation with your clients that you get their insights and you get their ideas and then you incorporate that into what you're doing in the company. If you do it like consistently, you could do that. Yes, the key is, you just mentioned that most important word probably, consistently. Not consistently. just uh, one-off. We're doing research and that's a project and it has a start date and an end date. No. It's always on. Yeah. Actually, um, there are several like software that are uh, helping companies innovate and they're incorporating information from suppliers, from clients, from users, and then they could really gather all the information all the time from the users, which is very important. So could you tell me like a use case from one of your um, workplaces that you helped the company innovate successfully with the research? Okay, um, this is a story from, uh, from WeWork. I really like it because of its, um, I don't know, flair, let's call it. <laughs> um, so um, I, was, I was asked, I was head of user experience there, including that, that, uh, that included research. Uh, I was asked to help improve sales. which is a, not a very common request from the user experience group. Um, but, a, but a very important request. <laughs> <laughs> Extremely important. Um, so um, long story short, we did a lot of research to understand um, 
the sales process from from the the perspective of people who are trying to buy from WeWork, uh, not necessarily from the perspective of what, what WeWork does, what our salespeople do, and so on, but from the perspective of people who are considering WeWork as a as a service and product. Um, we bumped into, um, we did a lot and we tracked a lot of data, but we bumped into several numbers that were we were very curious about. So we saw at the time, today it's different. At the time, the only way for you to buy from WeWork was to schedule a tour, a physical tour in the building. Somebody would show you around 10 minutes, 45 minutes, really depending on what you're interested in and the patience of the person who's showing you around and how many tours they have for that day. And then in the end, they give you a contract. They say, you know, this you have this price for 24 hours. You need to decide and send you away. Um, and usually, people book those tours one the day before, or maximum two days before the actual tour. The number we bumped into, the first number we bumped into, was that about 70, 70 percent of people who book tours didn't show up. Mm. For the tour. That's a lot. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, as a part of the research, we, we came back to uh, not all of them, but some of, some of these people and asked them, what happened? Any, yeah. Anything we can, we can learn about what, what happened? Why, you know, why didn't you show up for the tour you booked yesterday? Yeah. And surprisingly, again, 70%, um, just a coincidence that it's the same number, but 70% of the reasons why people never showed up, just the answer just amazed us. They couldn't find the entrance to the building. Really? Yeah. It sounds funny, but there are multiple reasons for that. Uh, first of all, actually, <laughs> actually, I've been to WeWork Tel Aviv like two months ago, and they're right. It's really hard to find it in Tel Aviv. <laughs> it's, it's not only about WeWork. I mean, buildings, I learned, are complicated. Sometimes the entrance is, is not very obvious. Uh, in some cases, most cases, WeWork did not own the buildings. So the landlord sometimes uh, didn't allow WeWork to put a sign because a sign would help. If, if there's a big sign, WeWork above the door, yeah. that helps. Yeah. But in, in many cases, the landlords did not allow it. Um, so it was completely you know, not WeWork's yeah. fault. Um, and sometimes it was WeWork's fault. We worked you know, fault it, because sometimes, it, it reminds yeah. me of it reminds me of, of the movie in Israel, like a big sign, see, you know, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's an Israeli movie, but uh, you know, it yeah, reminds yeah, me yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah, but it's complicated. Mm -hmm. um, in any case, um, there are multiple reasons why um, people couldn't find the entrance to the building. So mm -hmm. we uh, thought a little bit about that and, you know, asked ourselves, and this is kind of where Again, I think innovation is a funny word, but let's say where, where innovation happened, um, we thought what, what, would, what would be something that can solve that? So we asked, we had an idea to ask uh, our people in the buildings, we work uh, community teams, we call them, to shoot a five second video of a WeWork employee with a WeWork t-shirt waving from the entrance to the building wide enough so they can see you know, the red door and the tree so, so people can recognize where the entrance is from. And then uh, turn it into a GIF and then embed that in, an, in a reminder email sent to 
the person who, who booked the tour an hour before the tour. We tried it in, in uh, several buildings. We asked, we did like an A-B test, uh, divided half the tours, the tours in half, and then said, these tours continue to do whatever you did before. Half the tours try and send that email with this video embedded. Um, that uh, significantly, let's, let's be gentle, significantly improved the numbers and sales. Uh, so we were decided to implement that worldwide. And then the you know we work teams are really creative with the videos. We can do a lot in five <laughs> in five seconds. Um, yeah, I actually have. We'll put a link to that uh, story. Yeah. We have a story about all of that, including some examples. Wow, of these that's, videos that's a funny videos. story for sure. <laughs> it's funny yeah. to think so, that that was the reason. Yes, really funny. It actually happened to me. I worked for my first month at WeWork was uh, undercover. I didn't didn't tell anyone that I'm joining, and I. I toured a lot of buildings and I even joined as a WeWork member without anyone knowing. Um, it happened to me many times that I, I, I was standing in a McDonald's with the with the, with the, the right address and there's no WeWork. Wow. <laughs> and Man, so I, I knew I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, unaware of this problem, but I, I was completely unaware of the magnitude of, of the issue. Sure, and Maya is telling me that it's very interesting. So thank you, Maya. And what what you told me like till now is is mainly about uh, qualitative research. What about taking the data and and looking at the quantitative information? So I would call it experience data. There's a lot you can learn if you measure the experience. Um, in the research world, in the user experience world, there's a lot of confusion into what is an experience measurement or experience metrics. Uh, so I'll say a word about what it is and what it isn't, and what at least what sure. I refer to. So sure. anything you measure during user qualitative user research, I put it aside. That's not what I mean. What I mean is everything you measure once the product is out. Okay, uh, and then. I, I want to kind of. I'm going to start very, very high level. I would say there are five things, um, five kind of areas where uh, I, I'm looking at. One is what happens in people's minds. Are they happy with with the product or whatever it is? Um, two, are they deeply involved in it, or that's kind of a. Uh, all the rest are related to usage, not what, what happens in their mind. Deeply involved is engagement. Are they just trying out or using um, obvious and superficial features of the thing, or are they deeply involved? And as a as a you know as a product development team, you know what deeply involved means. Yeah. So look it's, for these signs. It's like more like engagement. What you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I was trying to avoid the word because it means so many things, but yes. Yeah, okay. Um, and then um, everything related to new. So new features and how fast they're adopted or new users and how much growth you have, I would look at that. Um, and then probably the most important area is, are you able to keep your users? Yeah. So re retain them, uh, yeah. are, they, are they coming back? And yeah. then uh, lastly, once they're using the thing, are they successful? Can they do what they want to do? Mm -hmm. All of that can tra translate, can be translated to 
dozens, if not hundreds of different metrics. And obviously we don't have time to talk about all of that, but yeah. generally speaking, these are the five categories. If they sound familiar, it's not, uh, it's not by coincidence. I based that on the, the Google Heart framework um, mm -hmm. for uh, deciding what to measure. So heart stands for uh, happiness, engagement, adoption, retention, and task success. So mm -hmm. these are kind of the, the five areas where if you measure the experience under these five areas, then you, you're gonna get a pretty good picture about whether the experience is good, bad, what the trend is, um, surprises. Yeah. So you think everything's great and then it's dropping uh, and so on. Or success sure. of something you launched. So let's say you, for whatever reason, you redesigned something so you can see if the trend is, you know, improving or not, usually it's going to go down and then it's going to go yeah. up. Um, but that's that's the, the general yeah. idea. But I've got the feeling that it's done more because it's more accessible. It's much easier. You can measure like from from the development itself. You have so many measurement and metrics that you're measuring, and you just need a few more. And it's it's easier technically to do it. So you can measure that as part of the performance measurement and other measurement that the developers are doing. And, and then you just need to interpret that. And while if, if you really need to talk to users, it's not by coincidence. You really need to go out and meet them, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I always like to say that even if you do everything as just described in terms of, of measurement, that's exactly half the picture because you, you know what happened, you have no idea why. You can guess, mm -hmm. and most most people guess, but you, you'll never know why. Even if you put five really smart people in a room, um, yeah. whoever they are in the company, and you yeah. guess together, which makes kind of creates the feeling that you're right, um, only only talking with your customers will, will tell you the real, yeah. uh, the real reasons for why the numbers are what they are. Yeah, and you see it all around, you know, like if there is one sentence that I said like thousands of times to my clients is like, you're not the client, you're not the users, you cannot really anticipate anything or predict anything. You just think you are, but you're not. And, yeah. and, and you hear it a lot, in, especially in Israel where they know everything. So it's like... <laughs> it's so like again, I'll, I'll, I thought so too when I, when I <laughs> moved to the US, but I'll, I'll surprise you. It's, uh, it's everywhere. Wow. Okay, yeah. so you surprise me now. <laughs> so what do you think are the challenges that uh, innovation leaders are facing these days with, with this crisis? And somebody tells you that it's so true. So somebody agrees with me that's good in our audience i think what we're what we're lacking these days or in the past few months um i mean it really depends where you are but we're, we're lacking the interaction with our with our peers um kind right. of in, in the same room um uh, you and I talked before about the, the coffee break that is non-existent. Right. Yeah, and, we and we said that that now people understand the importance of coffee yeah. break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that's uh, that's missing. I think I even read that uh, Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, talked about that. How how do we innovate in in this time? How what is the effect on, on innovation uh, during this time? Um, 
I think that I think that's key. Kind of social. It's not really socializing. It's just working together with people in person yeah. is now difficult. Uh, sometimes yeah. impossible um, and difficult. So you know, nobody knows what's going to happen. When when is this going to be over, if at all? What would it look like? But I think we we understand that whatever it is, there's going to be a component of us. Um, coming back together yeah um, yeah and not, totally not in not in zoom <laughs> I mean, yeah i totally agree in. that in order to really create something you need to co-create and to collaborate not over a virtual connection and you you have this energy together that you cannot really yeah. create uh, this way yeah so what is the most surprising thing you learned about user research after so many years in research Uh, surprises that there are always surprises. I mean, I, I remember, I, I don't do that anymore, but there were times where for fun, we did it at Google with the, with the engineers and with the product managers and even researchers. Let's say it was, there was a certain, I don't know, whatever, usability test. So we wrote down on a piece of paper what we think the outcome will be. Put it in an envelope and only opened it after the the study and then mm -hmm. for the most part we were all wrong oh all right um, okay including, including researchers a lot of people turn to researchers and say you know you did a lot of research you saw so many people and and did studies with, with thousands of people so you must know what what works and what doesn't work um And sometimes you ask yourself and say, yeah, I should know because I've seen so much, but yeah. it's still always, always surprising. Yeah. And, and you learn that sometimes, you know, we don't do research with a lot of people. So sometimes I know you do research with 10 people and let's say again, usability test, nine people succeed in, in doing something and one person doesn't. Does it mean, what does, so what does that one person mean that? Does it mean that it does not exist? It did. You just sat there yeah. and saw that it that it existed. So should you ignore it? Should you not ignore it? Um, there are always yeah. surprises. You're always surprised by what you uh, see. Human behavior. I mean, people are. Yeah, surprising. Amazing. Always, always, always surprising. Yeah, I think that um, staying curious is so important these days. Yeah. And, and it's part of being a researcher. It's like you don't know. You're you're trying things out, and you want to see what's the result. So that's that's the fun part about doing yep. research. Okay, so could you tell us where could people hear more about you and contact you about your work? Um, they can contact me. I'm not sure I'm going to contact back real uh, quick uh, um, in in any standard, but. Uh, probably Twitter is the best place. Um, I know it's not very popular in Israel, but, um, yeah. but elsewhere it is. Um, so Twitter uh, is probably the best, uh, the best place. At T-S-H-A-R-O-N, at T-S-H-A-R-O-N. Wow. So we have one last question and I'm going to mm -hmm. show you. Like here is Gadi. And he's asking about the importance of a coffee break. You have mentioned <laughs> the water cooler chat. That is lacking nowadays. How can this be replaced post-COVID as employees won't go back to the offices five days a week? What do you think? I think I can read some <laughs> minds. Um, 
So it's complicated. I mean, again, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know that we want to be together. We know we can't be together at home. We know that we can be together in the office, but it's problematic. So we need to find the middle way, uh, yeah. somewhere in between uh, that's not home and it's not the office, maybe existing places already, maybe they're close to home, maybe not, yeah. where we are capable and able to meet our peers, interact with them, and not just our peers, meet people in general, interview candidates, uh, have sales-related meetings uh, with potential customers. This can happen in existing places who are now suffering tremendously. Uh, I'm talking about you know, bars, pubs, restaurants, cafes, coffee shops, uh, anyone that can host you. Um, and um, we, we have that, that opportunity to do something about that. Whether that's yeah. going to happen or not, I think it will. Uh, I think yeah. companies now, it's a cultural change for them. They need to accept the fact that the office is probably not going to be what it was before. Even after, maybe not after the virus, because the virus is probably going to stay with us, but after the vaccine. Um, yeah things are going to change. A lot of people yeah. agree on that. Yeah, I, I think that we'll find a way to be together. So right now it's like a change. Um, it's, it's a change and it takes time, but people will find the way and the uh, places which is most important for them to relate to each other, which is like in a different perspective, and they will find the right solution for it. And, and in some cases, it's just like going and doing very small meetings out, out, outside the office and just meeting one of your peers. And it could be like uh, you, you could have a space which is not only talking about uh, uh, what we need to do. It's, it's part of the small talk that we usually don't have in virtual. So people will find a way because it's a very human nature thing to relate to each other. And, and I'm oh, sure it's going to change. I'll tell you a secret. It, it already it already happens. You know, it's already yeah. happening. People, right. whether their companies allow it or not, they meet <laughs> with each other. And I mean, people who work together, they yeah. meet because they 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 crave that and they need that. We all do. They yeah, they miss each other. They mi yeah. miss the human connection. So thanks, Gadi. And the last one is Vivian, who says that both of us are friends from the World Usability Congress. So hi, Vivian. Maybe we'll meet there next week, next next year, and we'll do it both together, which is which would be wonderful. I hope so. I hope yeah. So, so yeah, I, I truly do. So I want to thank you for your time, and it's been such a pleasure and really interesting and insightful. And uh, we'll leave all the links to to contact you and to the books, which are very recommended. We'll put it on the links. And thank you for being with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Andy. It was fun. Yeah, and, and all of you change makers out there, thank you for joining us. Have a great day. Bye bye. I'm Adima Zaukario, and you've been listening to the Invincible Innovation Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, invincibleinnovation.com, where you can learn more about our programs and my book, Innovating Through Chaos. I'll be waiting for you next week in our next episode. Thank you for listening.